Thank you for being here this morning together with us as uh, we continue on in our series that we have been in in 1 Corinthians. And we find ourselves this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And you can turn there in your copy of God's Word if you're using your pew Bible this morning. It's page 954, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We've entitled this series, Course Correction. And uh, we've entitled that because in, in essence that's what Paul's doing here in writing this letter to the believers in Corinth. He's been providing for them some corrective instruction as they seek to walk in the world that we find ourselves living in as well for the Lord Jesus Christ as followers of Christ. And they were in need of some correction. Uh, aren't we in need of correction sometimes? Uh, there are times that it's absolutely essential and necessary for someone to come alongside of us and help us to understand when we are uh, kind of veering off course or we're losing our way. And uh, Paul was giving this instruction as we've seen already as we've navigated through the first five chapters of 1 Corinthians. We find ourselves this morning in chapter 6 and we'll be looking specifically at verses 1 through 11 this morning. So you can follow along uh, in your copy of God's Word as we read. Paul writes in verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Again, Paul continues on his instruction here in his letter to the believers in Corinth, uh, addressing some hard matters, addressing some serious matters, and giving instruction on things that were very relevant to the listener, to the reader. And uh, we find ourselves in the world in which we're living today in need of this same instruction. When we look at the culture in which we live, when we look at the society we live in, we look at the values of the society we live in, we look at the participation in the things that are going on in this world, it is very much time for the church as a whole to have some course correction on many of the issues that Paul himself is addressing as well. I want to ask you a question this morning. How many of you have ever heard the statement, the customer is always right? How many of you have ever heard that statement? Some of you are already giggling and laughing about that because you know that statement. And sometimes that can be an awful statement. Um, if you are a business owner, you chances are have shared that 
statement maybe with some of your employees. If you've ever worked in retail or in customer service or in the food industry, you've probably have either shared that with employees. If you're an employee, you've received that instruction from an employer. The customer is always right. Whether they're actually right or not, they're right. Uh, I remember when I was a youth pastor, I also worked as a waiter at Outback Steakhouse years ago. And uh, I remember uh, when I was having my training done, that was one of those kind of things that you understood was that the customer was always right. And it would be as a scenario, if you're there and you're taking someone's order and uh, you're writing down what they ordered and you ask them how they want their steak cooked and they say, I'd like the steak cooked uh, medium well, which is reason enough to get kicked out of the steakhouse at that point. But if you write that down... And you go in the back and you, order, and you put the order in and you bring the steak to the customer and you put it in front of them and it's cooked medium well and they cut into it and you ask the question, would you mind cutting into your steak to let me know if it's done how you wanted it done, right? How many of you have ever been asked that before? And, and so you cut into the steak and um, they open the steak up and if a customer who ordered it medium well has it medium well and says, well, I didn't order it medium well, I ordered it medium and I have it written down on my paper that it was ordered medium well. What, you, you ever see people like when they're standing there and it like they're saying something but they're not actually doing it. So they're replaying in their mind this is what they would say. And so what I would typically want to say would be like, no, you're wrong. You ordered it medium well. And actually, in case you don't believe me, I've written it down because you probably forgot. But you ordered it medium well. And so myself as a competent server wrote down the correct instruction and brought you your steak exactly as you wanted it. Now you'll eat that steak because that's what you ordered. <laughs> and then you're going to leave me a big tip afterwards too because I got it right. It's not what's said. It's one of those things, the out of body, like you're seeing yourself doing it. But instead what I say is, oh, I'm so sorry. You ordered it medium. My mistake, I must have wrote it down wrong because I wrote down medium well, right? That's, that's what you do. And you go in the back and you, you go in the back and the customer can't hear you in the back. You're like, hey, listen, I wrote down what the customer wanted, but they changed their mind. They wanted it medium. And the manager will come out and he'll bring the steak when it has to be redone. And he'll put it on the plate. Hey, say, I'm so sorry. Can we get you anything else that you want? Can we bend over backwards to serve you? Because you were wrong the way you ordered it, but it's okay. <laughs> no, the customer is always right. And here's why. Here's why. Because the owner of that establishment, the general manager of that establishment, understands a very valuable point. That their reputation as a restaurant for their customer service, that their reputation to provide a product that customers will want and wanting them to repeat is of more value to them than that steak that they're losing out on that day. Their reputation as a company, as a restaurant, is of greater value to them than what they might be losing in that one meal. Because we live in a society today that what would happen if, if a manager came out and said, I'm so sorry, but my server told me you ordered it medium well, and I'm backing him on this, and if you don't like it, you can go somewhere else. People will leave. They'll be appalled. It would be all over social media, and there'll be videos. People will be on there. You guys, I'm, I'm so triggered right now. I can't move because someone brought me the wrong steak. And what would end up happening is there would be a, a, just a reputation that would go throughout the community of boycotting that steakhouse because they don't care about their customers. And the reputation of that establishment would be damaged. Why? Because 
We didn't want the customer to understand that they're always right, even when they're not. Now, I know some of us could get really upset or even fired up about that. But in some ways, that's what Paul is saying in the passage that we're looking at before us this morning. Paul's writing as he opens chapter 6 about an area of lawsuits between brothers where there is dissension and there's arguments and someone is feeling like they're being taken advantage of. This is what Paul says. He wants them to understand something. He wants them to understand that as believers living in this life, as believers when it comes to our lives, it's not about you and it's not about me, it's about Jesus. Can you say that with me? It's not about you, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. Turn to the person next to you and tell them that. It's not about you, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. Because what Paul is going to address in the passage before us is a number of things. He's going to help the believer to understand, yes, specifically when it comes to the area of lawsuits amongst believers, when it comes to the area of disputes amongst believers, but also when it comes to the area of understanding about the reality of heaven and the reality of hell and the reality of what God has already accomplished in our lives for all of eternity. We need to understand that the reputation of Christ should be of greater value to us than anything that this world has to offer to us. And we have to be willing to have this understanding and this mentality. It's not about you. It's not about me. It is all about Jesus when it comes to the life of the believer in Christ. And here's what I'd like to do this morning. I've broken down this section of verses 1 through 11 into two different parts Verses 1 through 8 and verses 9 to 11. I'd like to give us some observations from each of these sections. Three observations from verses 1 to 8 and verses 9 to 11. And then I'd like to give us some, I believe, helpful applications as we go from here so that we might really put into practice this statement of it's not about you, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. First in verses 1 through 8. Number one, matters pertaining to this life are secondary to matters that pertain to eternity. Matters that pertain to this life are secondary to matters that pertain to eternity. This boils down to the question of what truly matters more. Look again, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Paul's laying out this understanding of what's going on in the church at Corinth is that believers have disputes with one another. Someone's defrauding someone. And instead of handling this within the body of Christ, instead of handling it between the saints, they're going outside the church and they're bringing it before the unsaved, uh, those that are, in, in Paul's terminology that he'll use in just a little bit here, sinful men. He's bringing it before those that ultimately the saints, the believers in Christ, will have part in in the judgment of of the world. And he's saying, listen, you who are going to be judges, you who are going to rule and reign with Christ for all of eternity, you who have wisdom that is from above, you who have been taught by God, you who have the, the revealed word of God and have known the authoritative word of God, you're taking something that you who are saints and will be for all of eternity and presenting it to those that will be judged, those that are lost, those that do not know Christ, and you're asking them for their wisdom in determining how you as saints should handle this matter? Do you see the problem with that? 
That's what Paul's wanting them to understand. But what I, I don't want us to miss is look at how he describes what they're talking about in verse 2. Do you not know the saints will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to, to try trivial cases? We don't even know what exactly was going on as far as the specifics. And we also don't know how much someone was defrauding their brother here. But whatever it was, and however great of a matter it was, and however severe of a matter it was, Paul defines it as trivial cases. Why? Because Paul understood he had this perspective and he wanted the believer to have this same perspective that matters pertaining to this life are secondary to the matters that pertain to eternity. Folks, we have to come to this understanding that the souls of men matter more than the cars that we drive or the houses that we live in. We have to understand as the body of Christ that the eternal state of our neighbor is of greater value than what our neighbor thinks about our lawn. We have to understand that it's of greater value that our friends or coworkers or classmates that we rub shoulders with on a daily basis know Christ more than they know the brand of the clothing that we wear. Because the matters pertaining to this life are always secondary to the matters that pertain to eternity. And he says this, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Verse 5, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own Brothers, matters that pertain to this life are secondary to matters that pertain to eternity. And you know, sometimes we can get so caught up, so caught up in the here and now in the things of the world that we lose sight of what is to come. We can find ourselves just filling up so much on the things that will ultimately be burned up and that don't matter in eternity. This past Christmas Eve, my aunt uh, invited us over to her house to have a meal uh, following the Christmas Eve service. And so um, when you have an Italian family and you have Christmas Eve or Christmas Day meals, you don't just have one thing at, at that meal. And so typically the way this works on Christmas Eve, if you go over someone's house and my, my family for Christmas Eve and you show up there, there are a variety of foods that you can partake of. And uh, so when we get there, there's normally one table, and you look at the table, and it's just filled with food. Um, and there are, you know, uh, different kinds of meats and cold cuts for sandwiches, and uh, there are some, a couple Italian dishes, a couple different kinds of fish that are made around Christmas time. There are Italian dishes, and there's different kinds of breads that are out there. There's probably some ham that's been made that's been cut that's out there, maybe some roast beef that's out there that's been cut, some kind of casserole that's out there. There's all this food and, and breads and everything else, and there's like appetizer type things, and it's kind of like everything's there. And when we got there on Christmas Eve, I was quite hungry, but I looked at all the things that were on the table, and everything looked really good, but I really didn't grab anything. And, and my aunt comes over to me, she's like, Boo, which they call me Boo, that's my nickname growing up, and, and uh, that's not for you to use, but that's what my family calls. Glad I shared that. And, uh, and she's like, 
She's like, boo, honey. She's like, how come you haven't, how come you haven't filled up your plate with anything? And she's like, go, go get some food. As much as I wanted to, and it wasn't because I was like watching my diet clearly, and it wasn't because I was like worried about what I was going to be eating that day. It was because I knew what was to come was my aunt's uh, macaroni and sauce and meatballs and, and sauces that she makes. It's, it's excellent. And so she already had it on the, the stove like a pot that probably every one of us could jump into and fit in. That's how big this pot is of sauce and meatballs and you could smell it. And she had the, the rigatoni's there and it was, it was boiling and she was going to make it. And, and I was so ready to eat that that the things that were on that table I, I didn't even really care to look at. Because what I really wanted was coming. Now here's why I share that with you. Don't get so distracted, church. By the things that the world can offer to you and lose sight of what is to come. What really is to come. And what Paul is telling the believers here, I believe, in a very firm that God to be told by Jesus to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him. We understand that and we can accept that when it comes to our understanding of our standing in the world. But sometimes it's necessary and important for us to understand as well. We are called to esteem others better than ourselves, put the interests and needs of others before ourselves, even when it comes to the matters within the church. And that can be a little bit more difficult at times. Matters pertaining to this life are secondary to matters that pertain to eternity. Paul calls them in verse 3, or end of verse 2, trivial cases. Trivial cases. Number two, disputes within the family of God should be settled within the family of God. Disputes within the family of God should be settled within the family of God. He says, if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases at the end of verse 2? It's again this question, this understanding of how this is a really just a, a complete ridiculous thing that the believer in Christ would think those that do not have the wisdom, knowledge, and understanding that God has given to those within the body of Christ would have better discernment to judge between brothers within the body of Christ. He says, don't you have the ability or competence to do this? If you have such cases, verse 4, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Brother goes against brother and before unbelievers, verse 6. What an underlying current that is here in all of this understanding of the necessity of believers settling disputes within the family of God, within the family of God, is the underlying understanding that the testimony of Christ is what we are seeing in some ways being muddied and destroyed here by their incompetence towards one another. We have a testimony for Christ to a watching world. He says that you're doing this and you're doing it before unbelievers. To have lawsuits, verse 7, at all is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why rather not be defrauded? But you're defrauding even your own brothers. And so there's an understanding here. First of all, as believers in Christ, the disputes within the family of God should be settled within the family of God. But there's also something here that Paul shouldn't even have to tell them. And he doesn't even really come out in a forceful way to say it. It's a given already. We as believers in Christ should not be defrauding one another. Taking advantage of one another. We shouldn't be doing things for the detriment of one another. And if we're following that command and we're obeying Christ in that command by serving one another and loving one another and forgiving one another and caring for one another and bearing one another's burdens and doing good to one another and esteeming others better than ourselves and looking at others' interests and not our own, if we're doing that and in doing so modeling Christ's example, there should not be the necessity for disputes and quarreling 
There wouldn't be the presence of defrauding. But he says here, disputes within the family of God should be settled within the family of God. Why take something that is within the household of God and present it to a lost watching world asking for their opinion about how we honor God in our response to this? Because really what we're asking in any kind of dispute within the family of God or between believers in Christ is not what does the world think, but what does God think? We don't ask the question of what will glorify myself or glorify in the world, but what glorifies Christ? And do we understand how ridiculous it is to think that those that do not know Christ, that have not been made alive, that have not had the discernment that is offered only through the Spirit of God and the Word of God, to ask those that are far from God to give instruction of the best way those that know God can glorify God. You see the problem with that? This is what Paul is wanting them to understand. Disputes within The family of God should be settled within the family of God. Can you imagine? How many of you have ever had disputes within your family? You ever had that happen? You ever have arguments in your family? I want to feel better, so show me see your hands. Put your hands up. All of us have, right? We are all familiar with having disputes. If you have kids, disputes between your kids. If you have siblings, disputes between brothers and sisters. If you have aunts and uncles and cousins, disputes between aunts and uncles and cousins. Have you ever seen that commercial that uh, the family, they bought a new house and they have the ants over and the ants like, it's a lot of house. I hope you can keep it clean. You ever see that commercial? And and like, they're kind of like just jabbing a little bit and jabbing a little bit. And, And it's one of these things that we understand. It's a given there are disputes between family members but can you imagine if in the rosa household like my my kids are fighting and and shoshana and i are fighting with the kids and 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 we have rules in our house and we have the way that we do things in our house and i'm like you know what that's it we're not settling this here i'm putting an open house sign outside so everybody in the neighborhood can come in here and tell me what we should do how do you think that would go not well But in essence, that's what's happening in the church of Corinth. Is you have the family of God, the household of God, with brothers and sisters in Christ. They're at odds with one another, and they're not able to sell it. And so you know what they do? They put an open house sign out in the front yard and says, Hey, can everybody come and tell us what we're supposed to do? Can you who do not know God, you who have been lost and are dead in your sin that do not know Christ, can you please tell us who know Christ how we can best honor Christ with the issue that's before us? And it makes no sense. It makes no sense. And Paul says that you're doing this to your shame. Verse 5, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother. And that before unbelievers. Leads to a third point. It's better to suffer loss of temporary things than to suffer loss of eternal things. It's better to suffer loss of temporary things than the loss of eternal things. It's better to lose out in this life than to lose out in eternity. Some things just don't matter. Some things just don't matter. How much value do we place upon obedience to Christ How much would we be willing to suffer for the testimony of Christ when it comes to the things of this life? What was going on in the church at Corinth, obviously, was there was a dispute amongst brothers and someone was defrauding a brother in some capacity. What Paul's saying is you handle this within the body of Christ. You handle this within the church. And he says... 
To have lawsuits at all with one another, verse 7, is already defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? See, in the context of this, the testimony of Christ, the testimony of this church was, was being muddied. This was before unbelievers. And so the church at Corinth, which was to be a light to a dark world, was scattering more darkness coming out of it. The church, which was to be proclaimers of the truth, those that were preaching Christ and Christ crucified, those that were preaching about the abundant life that is offered in Jesus, the hope, the peace, the joy that is found through Christ, the unity that is in Christ, the family of God that is only in Christ, was going to a lost, watching world and sharing how they were defrauding one another and destroying one another and arguing with one another. And oh, by the way, in the midst of that, why don't I tell you about Jesus and how great it is to follow him? Paul says it's better for you to suffer loss of temporary things. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded rather than harm the testimony of Christ? It was Paul the Apostle who would say the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. In Philippians 3, 7 to 15, listen to Paul's words here. He said, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will also reveal that to you. Paul's understanding, his instruction, and his modeling of his very life to the watching world was that the things, the suffering of this world... Whatever that may be and whatever it may bring are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed in eternity. The matters of this life do not matter in comparison with the things of eternity. And so it's important, Paul was telling them, better to suffer the loss of temporary things than to suffer the loss of eternal things. Now, Paul's going to move on in verses 9 through 11, I think with giving the believer an understanding of the reality of the ones that they were going to with these lawsuits. He's, he's giving them the reality of the lost. The reality of the kingdom of God. And the reality of who they are in Christ. Look again at verses 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And, and so again, in the context here, Paul begins in verses 1 through 8 with his understanding of the believer in Christ settling disputes within the family of God and not going outside of the family of God to the unbeliever, to the one that is lost. And, and, he, and he talks about 
Better to be defrauded by a brother, better to suffer wrong than to bring this before those that are lost and those that are unbelievers. And then he goes on and he reminds them. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous, the ones that he was speaking of that they were going to to settle these judgments, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so let me just point out three truths from this part, these observations from verses 9 to 11. First of all, understand not everyone goes to heaven. Not everyone goes to heaven. And that's a sobering reality that we have to come to grips with and we have to understand. Paul's statement, verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God is one that should really press on our hearts, press on our minds and our souls. That those who do not know Christ as Savior, that those who are living a continual practice of sin, those that are in rebellion to God and are lost apart from Christ, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not everyone goes to heaven. Sometimes it's easier for us to just kind of glaze over that reality. It's much easier to think of people as just being good people rather than people who are lost and in need of Christ. But the reality of heaven, that heaven is real, and not everyone goes to heaven, not everyone will inherit the kingdom of God, brings with it the reality that hell is real. The lake of fire is real. And there will be real people who in reality will truly suffer for all of eternity because of their sin. Apart from Christ, the wages of sin is death. This is a reality we have to come to grips with. Not everyone goes to heaven. He says, do you not know not every, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Don't be deceived into thinking that everybody's just okay and everybody is going to stand before God and they're going to be okay before God. It's, that's a lie that the world and, and really people for, for eternity uh, uh, that we've existed, it's not really eternity, all of the people that have ever existed in this life have thought this. I'm going to be okay. It's the, the, the thing that the devil said in Genesis. You won't die. You'll be okay. But the reality is not everyone goes to heaven. And Paul's reminding them of this. Now again, contextually, he's reminding them of this when he's challenging them about settling disputes. That they don't go to those that are lost. Those that are uh, rebellious to God. Those that will not partake of the kingdom of God as the believer will. He's going to them and reminding them about these individuals and telling them the reality He says, don't be deceived. And then he lists these areas. Now listen, the focus of the message is not entirely on these lists of sins that are here. But if you're here today and and you hear this list and you would say, man, that describes my life and my lifestyle. The question you need to wrestle with this morning is, do you truly know Christ? Are you truly a follower of Jesus? Or are you still standing before God as someone who is lost and dead in his sin or sin and needing forgiveness through Christ? But he says, not everyone will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There's a list that Paul, and this isn't an exhaustive list, obviously, of sins. 
But he makes a point and helps them to understand that those that are living these lifestyles of sins, those that are continually practicing these things, those that have embraced these lifestyles of sins, they're showing in their actions, they're demonstrating in their way of living that they do not belong to Christ. And they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Which leads to a second point you see here in verses 9 to 11. Everyone has a need for forgiveness and cleansing. Paul says, and such were some of you. Paul makes this point, this understanding, this reality when he's talking to the believers in Corinth who dealt with these same very issues of sin. This identified as is their identity, it was who they were apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, they were idolaters. They were adulterers. Apart from Christ, they were drunkards. They were thieves. Apart from Christ, they were homosexuals. They were sexually immoral. Apart from Christ, they were swindlers and revilers. Apart from Christ, they were greedy. And he says, in such were some of you. Paul's making this understanding and putting this reminder out to them that there are those that are lost in the world that will not inherit the kingdom of God. Their lifestyle is on display for all to see. This is who they are, but understand that's who you were. That's who you were, but you were in need of forgiveness. You were in need of cleansing. You were in need. I was in need of the grace of God. And so that's why we're told elsewhere in Scripture, we have no room to boast about anything but Christ. Because I'm not any better than you, and you're not any better than me, and we're not any better than anyone else in this world that is lost without hope, without Christ. The only good that is within us is Christ. The only thing that we have before God to stand before God is not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus. And praise God that that's the case. Because you and I, left to ourselves, we're sinners in the hands of a holy God who will bring vengeance and wrath on this earth. But in Christ, this is who we once were. And in Christ, this is who those that are entrapped in these areas of sin in Christ, that can, they could be set free and say that's who they once were. But Paul's wanting to understand this reality. Not everyone goes to heaven. Everyone has a need for forgiveness and cleansing. And he wants these believers to understand that they've been made clean and they are accepted in the sight of God through Jesus. Understand their present state. If you look at verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, Paul begins, begins this portion of God's word in chapter 6 by helping them to understand the reality of the necessity of settling within the household of God, the disputes within the household of God. Why? Because we don't take something before that should be put before God and put it before those that have rejected God. We don't seek counsel and advice from those that will not inherit the kingdom of God about things pertaining to the kingdom of God. But he wants them to understand the, the, the harsh reality of those that are outside of the household of God. This is who they are. This is what characterizes their lives. This is the reason there's condemnation and the wrath of God coming. But he also wants to remind them and help them to understand that, yes, that's who you once were, but that's not who you are now in Jesus. Of deserved favor and the favor of God. Not because they're good, not because they're special, not because they've done something that has been marvelous in God's sight, but because God is graceful and merciful to us. There's no room for boasting here. The reality of heaven and the reality of hell, the reality that there are those that are lost 
and the reality that we too were lost but have been made alive in Christ should stir you and I as believers in Christ to matters of eternal things and not the things of this temporary world. It should stir us. It should stir our hearts. It should stir our minds for those that need Christ. So let me give us some applications this morning. Number one, keep your eyes focused on what really matters, the things of eternity. If we as followers of Jesus Christ are keeping our eyes focused on what really matters, the things of eternity, this world and the loss of things in this world don't seem so important when we're focused on the things of eternity. Number two, be willing to suffer as you set your affections on things of eternity. Recognize what Jesus said. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. Recognize what Paul said here. It's better to suffer loss. It's better to suffer loss and be defrauded. To maintain the testimony of Christ to a watching world who, by the way, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Than it is to be right. Than it is to be fair. Than it is to get what you even deserve. Do you realize if God gave us what we truly deserve, we would all be punished for all of eternity. And what an example for us to look at others through the same lens. Number three, remember the reality of the eternal destination of the souls of men. Remember the reality of the eternal destination of the souls of men. How hard would it be as believers in Christ if we have a dispute with one another within the household of God? How hard should it have been for the Corinthian believers as they have disputes within the household of God to think the best thing to do would be put it before those that are lost, those who have eternal souls, and to represent Christ in the eyes of those that are lost in the manner in which they were representing Christ. Remember the reality of the eternal destination of the souls of men. I think as a church, if we would put before our minds and hearts on a daily basis the reality of heaven and hell, the reality of the eternal destination of the souls of men, we would be a bit more moved in our actions and in our words to represent Christ well. Number four, live as one who has been made clean. And such were some of you, Paul said in verse 11. Such were some of you. And that's not to say that as a believer in Christ, you will not struggle with sin and maybe struggling with those very sins that are listed in this list. But that no longer defines who we are. That's no longer the lifestyle that we live. It's no longer the passion of our heart and of our mind. We've been made alive. Live as one who has been made clean. And number five, share the gospel as one who has eternal answers for eternal needs. Do you realize, church, we have eternal answers for eternal needs. We have answers that the world, those that are lost that do not know Christ, do not have and cannot give. And so share the gospel. Share the good news concerning Jesus Christ as one who has eternal answers for eternal needs. Do you realize every single person we come in contact with this week, saved or unsaved, every single person we come in contact with this week, we have the truth of the gospel to share, which gives eternal answers for eternal needs. That is the reality every single day that we live as those that know Christ. Eternal answers for eternal needs. Might we care more about the reputation of Christ, the testimony of Christ to a watching world, 
the witness of Christ to a watching world than we do even our own good or the things of this world so that Christ is glorified. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word this morning and thank you for the clear instruction from Paul. God, I pray that we would be faithful. God, that we would allow the things of eternity to simply matter more to us than the things of this world. That we would be faithfully representing Christ to a world that is watching. God, that we would live and walk as those that have been made clean in Christ. I pray, Father, that we would have this focus on things above. That we would faithfully, Lord, put any disputes, any quarrels, any arguments before you. And God, that we would be willing, when necessary, as followers of Christ, to suffer so that the testimony of Christ might be preserved and might be proclaimed. We give you all the glory this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.